Please remain standing and let, uh, open your Bibles to Exodus. Surprise, surprise. Uh, we're going to be working through Exodus 21, finishing the chapter. No, sorry, only through verse 32. So we're going to read Exodus 21, verses 12 through 32. The next section of Exodus 21, last week we covered verses 1 through 11, this week 12 through 32. This is the words of our living God. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar, that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When man, men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, but the man does not die, but takes to his bed... And if he rises again, walks outdoors with a staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time, shall have him thoroughly healed. And when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he shall not be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, you shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, its owner shall be put to death. And for ransom is imposed on him, he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If the ox gores a man's son or daughter, he shall, be, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. The ox shall be stoned. This is the reading of the Lord's word this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bless it. God, we thank you for your word. It is timeless and eternal, and yet we need your help to understand not just what it says, but what it says to us today. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be in us, that your spirit would be uh, through working through the words of the sermon this morning for your glory, that you would feed us, Lord, feed us the gospel, lead us towards Jesus, teach us what it looks like, what it means to walk in the manner that you have called us, to love as you have loved us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So to, to recap... To review where we are, Israel's still at Mount Sinai. Right, this is the mountain that's currently on fire, uh, and the living God is there. And out of the darkness, out of this cloud of smoke uh, and fire, God speaks to his people. And we talked a couple sermons ago about how this section of scripture uh, is made up of concentric circles. So if you remember, uh, there's an outer ring. 
of this section. And this section is Exodus 19 through 24. That's the outer ring. Chapters 19 and 24 are these two chapters form the concentric circle on the outside because they describe, both of them describe the appearance of the Lord on Mount Sinai. And they describe how Israel binds themselves with covenantal oaths to obey everything that God commands them to obey. So these these form the outside ring. The absolute dead center of this uh, of this section is Exodus 20, 18 through 26. So that was a couple of sermons ago. That's the dead center of this section. And that means that that's the, the central message of the section, of this whole, this whole section from 19 to 24. And in that section, Moses approaches the darkness where God is. And the Lord says, you shall build for me altars of dirt. And that's the foundational message. The message is that true fear of God drives you to simple worship. And in worship, God comes to you and blesses you. That's the center of this whole section. It's about worship of God. It's about who is he? What does he do? Uh, How are we to worship him? What does it look like to be people transformed by his grace? Everything comes out of, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then, so you have the outside circle, right, 1924. You have the middle in chapter 20. But we're now in in the middle circle. And that's the Ten Commandments in chapters 20. And then our section, 21 through 23, these chapters, are called the Book of the Covenant. And these form a circle because the Ten Commandments on one side, our chapters, 21 through 23, correspond to the Ten Commandments. They expand the Ten Commandments. They show how the Ten Commandments are to be applied to Israel in their lives. What does it look like to live according to the Ten Commandments? What happens if this happens? Right? All these what-ifs, let's answer some of them. As you might have guessed, uh, as you read our passage today, if you were to guess which commandment it was, you'd probably guess right. That's the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Our passage today, Exodus 21, 12 through 32, expands and explains and applies, you shall not murder, to Israel's everyday life. But there's, there's two things going on in our passage. The first thing that's going on is, is how is Israel to apply, you shall not murder, to all the various circumstances and exceptions that they, you all encounter in daily life? For instance, what if someone murders in self-defense? What happens? What if someone commits murder accidentally? What happens? What if you hurt them, but they don't die? What happens? What if they're a slave? So part of the reason for this passage and for these laws is to give Israel insight into how to actually apply you shall not murder to their daily life in the land of Canaan. And as we'll see, God's law is often surprising, it's unique, and it's good. But there's a second thing going on. Because these this whole section, 21 through 23, corresponds to the Ten Commandments. That means that every law that we read in these passages, like the commandments, they are built upon God's character. That means that they teach us something about who God is. They show us his heart. They show us what God values. And we learned this last week, 
Last week, we, we did a previous passage, 21, 1 through 11. And we saw how these laws for how you treat slaves corresponds to the fourth commandment. That the fourth commandment is about freedom. And so as you treat your slaves, you treat them valuing their freedom. Because God values freedom. God wants his people to be free. He wants it so badly that he pays their debts so that they can be released from slavery to sin and death. And so as we move into these laws on the, on the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, we'll see what does God value. We'll see that God values life. And the value that God places on life is not just about what to do if someone gets killed. That's a good start. I certainly encourage you, start there. Right? Start with not killing people. That's great. But... What about every other circumstance of life? And these laws teach Israel that they are to value other people's lives higher than their own. Because that's what God does. These laws teach Israel that they are to value other people's lives higher than their own because that's what God does. That's who he is. That's his heart. So we'll dive into these texts, this text and see God values life. And as I said, right, these, are, these laws are expanding upon the Sixth Commandment, and they begin to answer the inevitable questions. Well, what about this? So throughout these laws, notice how God's value of life shapes every part of society. Uh, first, it starts off in verse 12, right? Just baseline, let's establish the foundation. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. God values life so highly that only the murderer's own life will satisfy justice for his homicide. But that leads us to our first what if. Well, what if he didn't mean to? Or what if it was self-defense? So verse 13. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. In other words... You cannot erase the fact that someone is now dead. But if it wasn't intentional, God provides a means of escape for the person who did it, which later in Israel's history we'll learn there'll be various sanctuary cities where where someone who committed uh, accidental murder or it was in self-defense or some other various scenario that wasn't intentional, wasn't willful, God says there is a means of escape for you. And this is not a new concept in the world. This is not new for, for the whole world because many cultures have had various forms of sanctuary cities with various functions, um, whether it's, it's for a place for murderers to go or for where you can, you can be uh, safe from uh, oppression or persecution. Lots of cultures have had sanctuary cities. It's not new. It's surprising. But what is surprising is the next verse. What God says in verse 14 is that if a man willfully attacks another, to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar so that he may die. And the context for this law is that often in the ancient world, someone who had committed a crime or a sin uh, and they were on the run from justice, right? they could run to the altar of, of, of insert random God, um, grab hold of the altar of that God, and they were supposedly safe. 
right? It's, it's kind of like they're playing a, a deadly game of tag and the altar's base. Right? They get to go, touch base, they're safe. But God says his altar is not a safe place for someone who has chosen to take life. That's how precious life is to God. In fact, life is so precious to God that even showing dishonor to your parents has the same penalty as murdering them. Verses 15 and 17. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. 17. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. So the punishment for striking or cursing your parents is the same as though you had murdered them. Why? Because your parents are uniquely the ones who gave you life. If your parents hadn't had you, you wouldn't exist. They gave you life. To strike your parents or to curse them, which means to dishonor them, it's the opposite of honor. It's to spit in the face of the ones who gave you life. They're the ones who raised you. Fed you, clothed you, housed you, cared for you. God values life so highly that we are to honor those who have given life. Further, verse 16 says that if anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. So it's a little bit different from the ESV, what I just read. The ESV says, whoever is found in possession of the slave. Uh, I like the NIV a little bit better because it says, whether the, the, the man who kidnapped, whether he sold the slave and his, the slave's gone, or he still has possession, that kidnapper is to be put to death. Why? Because to steal a person, to sell them into slavery, to steal them, is to, is to take away their life. It is as sure as murdering them. And yes, remember, there is slavery in Israel, but it was usually debt slavery. It was not kidnapping and stealing. And even if you became a slave, you were free in the seventh year, no matter what. So though they would become the lowest of the low, God still dignified the life of even the lowest people in his kingdom. He gave dignity to them. He said, you shall not treat them like possessions because their life has value to God. And when you kidnap someone, you steal that person's dignity. You kill it. But God says, not just for this area of life, but let's even extend, you shall not murder, even further. Verses 18 and 19 answers another what-if question. Well, what if you're fighting, right, and you hit them, and they don't die, but they get really injured? What the scripture says is that if the man rises again, verse 19, if he doesn't die, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Right? God doesn't just value whether someone lives or dies. Because this law is about the proper proportion of justice when you harm someone's life and you harm their ability to work, when you take away their ability to have a normal life. God's justice says that if you hurt someone, have them healed. 
If you cause them, if you cause them pain or you cause them uh, to lose something, pay it back. If man cannot work, help him cover that time because you have caused that. God's people are to value life like God values life to the point where we, this is how you are to love others. Love their lives more than you love your money. More than you love yourself. But the next verse, verse 20, is, is probably the most surprising verse compared to the surrounding nations. Because in many of these Israel laws, uh, there's corresponding laws in the nations. Uh, a lot of the laws that we read today are not necessarily unique. Lots of other cultures have forms of these laws. But verse 20 is unique. As far as I know, there aren't other laws like this in that time. Other nations had laws about what to do if you killed someone else's slave. But verse 20 is what happens when you kill your own slave, right? When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Other nations knew what to do if you killed someone else's slave. Well, clearly, you've harmed their master. So you shall pay their master. But God says that he values life so highly that if you harm even your own slaves, you have harmed their master, God. Because it says that if the slave dies under a master's hand, that slave shall be avenged. And that word avenged shows up various places in Scripture, and almost always when it shows up, it has to do with God taking vengeance, about God's avenging nature. So I think what's happening is that the Lord is saying, if you kill your own slave, someone under your care, if you abuse them, God himself will avenge that person. God will defend their dignity, their life, their honor, because the Lord values the lives of all of his people, especially those who cannot defend themselves. God loves and values the life of all of his people, especially if they cannot defend themselves. And speaking of those who cannot defend themselves, God values the lives of his littlest citizens too. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who struck her, uh, who hit her, shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So this law is answering another what if, right? What if, accidentally, that's assumed, but even maybe on purpose, if someone causes premature birth, what if? God says, well, if the woman and her child are okay, you shall pay a fine. But if they aren't okay, God values the lives of his littlest citizens, of, of these little babies. He loves them and values their life so much that he says in verse 23, if there is harm at all, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, Foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe 
to stripe. Now, these verses in the immediate context are about what happens in that scenario if someone causes premature birth. But these verses, 23 through 25, are actually the central message of this whole passage. That this, these verses are the main principle that drives all of these laws. You could sum up every law that we've discussed so far and all the ones that follow you could, dis, you could sum it all up as a life for a life. Because life is so valuable in God's eyes that only another life can satisfy justice and that we are to prioritize, we are to love other people's lives over and against our own. One principle we see right in a life for a life is that justice should be proportionate. Right? If, if you cause harm, if you cut off someone's foot, fix the foot. Right? Whatever that looks like. It can't be exactly the same right? because you can't cut off your own foot and attach it to someone else and you're good. But the principle is that you shall endeavor to pay back to the full whatever it is you have taken. So if someone murders, their life is taken. Or for instance... Right? If you strike someone and they can't work, pay what they would have made if they were working. Have them healed completely. That's what a life for a life, eye for an eye, means. Or take, for example, verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. God is saying, here's how you might apply the principle eye for an eye. You don't take your own eye out and give it to them. Instead, you proportionately match what you have taken. If you destroy, if you abuse someone under your care, they get to go free right then and there because that's matching what you have done to them. But proportionate justice, right? this is one of the principles of eye for an eye, life for a life. But I want you to notice two things, because if God was saying that this this principle is primarily about simply justice, I think he would say it a little bit differently. Notice what he says. If there is harm, then you shall pay. I want to take, for example, Code of Hammurabi, some hundreds of years before the Bible was written. Code of Hammurabi says it a little bit differently. Hammurabi says, if a man has destroyed the eye of a man, they shall destroy his eye. That's justice. That's saying the primary focus of this law is justice. Someone else, a judge, will destroy his eye. What God is saying is, you shall pay. This is because this principle for God is not just about justice. It is about the heart of the one who commits the sin. You shall restore what you destroyed. You shall pay the price of your sin. This this principle, these verses are about repentance. How shall you respond? What shall you do when you sin and hurt someone? You shall pay an eye for an eye. 
Jesus, the second important thing that God says, the first is that you shall pay. It's not just about justice. It's about your heart, your repentance, what that looks like. But then the next thing God says in the English, it says life for a life. But in the Hebrew, a more accurate translation would be a life instead of a life. Or another way to put it, a life in place of a life. An I instead of an I. An I in place of an I. This means that in addition to the principle of proportionate justice, that this is about repentance, saying that the second principle is sacrificial love. You shall pay. You shall do whatever is necessary. You shall sacrifice in love to heal the person you've hurt. Because true repentance is driven by love, not guilt. True repentance is driven by love, not guilt. Because love says, I have burned you. I have wounded you. I have lied to you. I have sinned against you. And I will do all I can to bear the burden of my failure and take as much of that burden away from you as I can. I will give my eye in place of yours. I will take as much as I can away from from your hurt, the consequences of the sin. I shall try to make sure that none of it falls on you, that as little as possible falls on you. I will give my eye in place of yours to bear the burden of my sin. I have wounded you, and I will pay whatever it takes to heal you. That is repentance. Someone who is falsely repentant. False repentance is born out of guilt. False repentance seeks to make the consequences of sin as easy and painless as possible for themselves. Someone who is not truly repentant plays damage control. They, they minimize their sin. Say, it's not as bad as all that. They, they blame others. Or they make excuses. If you want an example of this, just go to Genesis and, and read how Adam responds when he has sinned. Does he step up? Or does he make excuses? Does he blame others? Does he minimize his sin? Does he play damage control with God? Yes, he does. Because false repentance is born out of guilt. And these are all the ways that you and I, we try to make the process of repentance as easy and painless as possible for ourselves. But God says, if you are truly repentant, which is born out of love for the person you've hurt, you will seek to make the consequences as easy and painless as possible for the person that you have hurt. Even if that costs you. Because you care more about their life than you do your own. You care more about healing them than you do holding on to your own life, your own eye, your own foot, your own hand. A life in place of a life means to love someone else's life more than your own. It's sacrificial love. And that's the heart that God wants his people to have. He wants them to value other people's lives more than they value their own. 
Why? Because that's who God is. That's his character. Because all these laws that we read today are about how deeply God values the life of his people. He values his people's lives so much that he is willing to do anything, including giving himself up. He values your life so highly that he sacrificially loved you all the way to the cross. That is how much God loves your life. Because if you want, if you want to look in Scripture to see where do we see a life instead of a life the most clearly to know what it is, you look at the cross. Because on the cross, you will see Jesus sacrificially loving you, giving his life in place of yours. Him valuing your life higher than his own. Which means that when Jesus went to the cross, he was taking your life off of the cross and putting his there in your place. Because the cross is what you deserve. Because you are the murderer. You are the sinner. You are the one who has committed the sin. And according to all justice, according to every law that there's ever been, you should pay for your sin. But Jesus loved you so much that when the guilt, the time for guilt to be taken away came, when, when it was time for sin to be judged, Jesus stood up and says, I will take your punishment. I will put my life on the cross in place of yours. I will have my eye ripped out instead of yours. I will have my life cut off instead of yours. I will be wounded instead of you. I will be hit with stripes because of your sin, but I will do it in place of you so that you can live. Because Jesus loves you and loves your life that much. And you're going to look at your life and your heart and say, why? What do I have that's worth that? Why does God value my life so highly? What, I, don't, I haven't done anything. I don't have any value of myself. I'm, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to sin. I'm worse than a slave. I'm helpless. I'm, I, I don't have anything to give to God. But we saw today, God loves the lives of the slaves and of the babies. So it's okay to be a slave or to be a baby because God loves you. And he loves you because he made you. Your value doesn't come from how amazing you are. It doesn't come from how together you have it. It doesn't come from how many times you've sinned or not today. Your value comes because God formed you. Jesus knit you together. He, he, he put all the bits and bobs together to make you. Every birthmark, every dimple, every, every blemish is God's hand crafting you. And so, of course, he loves you. 
You're his. He made you. Not because you're amazing. Not because you're athletic or tall or attractive or rich. You don't have anything to offer God. He values you because he loves you and because he made you in his image. And so as loved people, as people who have received this gift of grace, as as people who are objects of Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary love, how should we respond? Or how should we live a life instead of a life? An eye instead of a life, or an eye instead of uh, an eye. And one way that we apply this to our own lives is actually what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, give him the other one. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Jesus is saying that the principle of sacrificial love applies to how we respond when we sin in repentance, but it also applies to what we do when someone else sins against us. If someone takes one of your eyes, give them the other one. Someone wounds you, give love. Why do we do this? How can we do this? It's not justice, but it is love. Because like Jesus, God calls us to value the lives of even our enemies higher than we value our own. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. You can see this throughout all of Exodus. You can see how God loves Israel's lives higher than his own life. How many times have we seen in Exodus Israel complain and grumble and accuse God of of all sorts of evil? How does God respond when his people complain? How does God respond when his people accuse him? He remains silent. He stands up on a rock and he lets his people hit him. And living waters come out. His life instead of yours. You can see this in the cross, where Jesus faces accusation after accusation. And ashamed, we hear our own mocking voices cry out among the scoffers. How does Jesus respond? He remains silent. He gets up on the cross, and he lets them crucify him, and water comes out. My life instead of yours. You can see this today in the supper, where we come to the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus. The lamb who was slain for our sins. The bread and the wine testify that Jesus has given his life for yours, his wounds in place of yours. He has loved you sacrificially, loved your life more than his own, And even now, he gives to you. Even now, he feeds you and loves you. So I'd like to invite the elders forward that we can partake of this meal.